Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and we've always believed in theatre that raises more questions than answers. That's why we're sitting down with some of the country's most respected playwrights and talking to them about their work. Each month, we look at one play over 30 minutes with insights straight from the source. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not In Print. Andrew Bovell writes for the stage, television and film. In 1992, he wrote the original screenplay for Strictly Ballroom, and in 2001, he went on to adapt his stage play, Speaking in Tongues, into the feature film, Lantana. The film premiered at the Sydney Film Festival in 2001, and went on to screen at numerous international film festivals, winning many awards. Most recently, Andrew adapted John le Carre's novel, A Most Wanted Man. Theatre credits include Scenes from a Separation with Hanny Rayson, Speaking in Tongues, which premiered at Griffin Theatre in 1996 and has had over 50 other productions worldwide. Holy Day, which won the Louis Essen Prize for Drama at the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards and the Orgy Award for Best Stage Play in 2002. When the Rain Stops Falling, which won Queensland and Victorian Premier's Literary Awards for Best Play, the Adelaide Critics Circle Individual Award, Sydney Theatre Award for Best New Australian Work, and three Green Room Awards, including Best New Writing for the Australian Stage. And the play that we're here to talk about today, Andrew's stage adaptation of The Secret River by Kate Grenville. The Secret River shines a light on a critical moment of Australian history. It tells the story of William Thornhill, born into brutal poverty in London in the late 18th century and transported to the colony of New South Wales for theft in 1806. After earning his freedom, he brings his wife, Sal, and their children up from Sydney Cove to the Hawkesbury where they take up 100 acres of land on the banks of the river. He falls in love with it and dares to dream that one day it might be his only to discover that it's not his to take. It's owned and occupied by the Darug people, and as Thornhill's attachment to this place and his dream of a better future begins to deepen, he's driven to make a choice that will haunt him for the rest of his life. Without doubt a classic of Australian theatre, The Secret River brings to life the birth of a new nation. By revealing the stark reality of colonisation, it moves towards healing the deep and terrible scars left by white settlement of this ancient land and the displacement of its Aboriginal peoples. Andrew, welcome back to Not In Print. Thanks, Dobby. Good to be here. Tell me how you came to adapt Kate Grenville's novel for the stage. Well, it was an unexpected and absolutely delightful call out of the blue from Kate Blanchett. And Kate's very hard to say no to. But as I soon discovered, The Secret River had been a passion of hers and Andrew's since they um, took over the company. It was a long time in the making, wasn't it? It was a long time in the making, but it actually took them a couple of years to pull together the space in their program to actually think about producing it. It was an idea from the beginning, but they didn't really act on that idea until I think the second or third year that, that they were there. Is that because it was such a large-scale project? Yes, I think so. And, and look, it took a while to coordinate the, the various people involved. And originally, I think the idea was that it would be a collaboration with Bangara. So it would be an STC, Bangara, Neil Am- Armfield mix and at that point they brought me in to do the adaptation, which is quite a bold and exciting concept. But 
As the process went on, Bangara's role changed and Stephen Page remained instrumental to the development. Well, let's talk about the adaptation process. You say in your introduction to the play that sometimes the best approach to adapting a novel is simply to get out of the way. And this proved to be the case with The Secret River. But what do you mean by get out of the way? Well, my first instincts in the adaptation was to actually depart from the novel. I was actually interested in the legacy of that story. How is what happened in our history played out in a contemporary sense? And I became very fascinated with one particular character, Dick Thornhill, who's William Thornhill's and Sal's second son. And Dick, of all his children, was the one that was most able to be open and open to the Indigenous presence and to want to engage with it. So I thought Dick was a fascinating character and I just asked myself what happened to him and what if he actually had eventually married an Aboriginal woman and they had children of their own. And I became very kind of interested in this idea of two parallel Thornhill families, the descendants of William Thornhill and the descendants of Dick Thornhill. And I wanted to follow both those branches of the family down through several generations to their contemporary manifestation. And I guess I wanted the point of that, trying to tell that story was, what is the effect of of that shared history? How How does it impact on these two branches of the same family. And so these were the ideas that I I was getting very excited with. But as you can see, they're quite a strong departure from the novel as Kate had conceived and written it. It's two stories, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's two stories, but I, I was very interested in finding ways to interweave them. Is that because in part of her sequel to The Secret River, Sarah Thornhill? Well, that came... Yeah, Sarah Thornhill came came along, which actually answered my curiosity about what happened to Dick Thornhill. But I'd reached the decision before that not to pursue that line of questioning. And, you know, to all of their credit, Neil, Stephen, Kate and Andrew, they really heard me out, but quietly urged me to come back to the task. Um, And, of course, Kate's book was strong enough that really the task was for me to get out of the way. But in saying that, you know, there are still many departures from the book, of course, in order to make it work as a piece of theatre. But I, I also think it was about sort of trying not to impose my own voice as a dramatist, but to allow Kate's voice to to continue to live in the work of theatre. And when you came back to the story as it's written and contained strictly within The Secret River, what really excited you about that story the most? What drew you in? The most important and the most exciting aspect of that story for me is the meeting of black and white. It's very much a a history of a story about white presence in this country and its subsequent impact on the Darug people in the Hawkesbury, but it's told from a white point of view, so I was very clear about that's what it needed to be. But I was fascinated by how white and black negotiated this sort of co-presence in this space, on this land. And what excited me was that there was a, a glimpse, a suggestion, a hint that our history could have been different, that if we have been able to find a sense of accommodation where we learnt from Indigenous knowledge uh, or at least open to their understanding of the ownership of land, 
that, you know, I like to think that our history may have been less violent. How did you choose the parts of Grenville's novel that would be included? For me, the drama always began where William Thornhill meets an Aboriginal man on a dark night in Sydney Cove. From that moment, I found the story to be absolutely electrifying. And, and interestingly, Kate chose to open the book with that as a prologue before she takes us back in time and starts the story more formally with William Thornhill as a child. And to me, the London story was quite familiar to us. Dickensian London, uh, an impoverished childhood, a story of a man trapped by the English class system. These things were actually quite familiar. And, of course, to tell that as well as to give the depth to the story of what happens in Australia, you know, we're talking about a very large work. So we made the kind of courageous decision to start there, but also out of a sense of this is the, this is the part of Kate's novel which is most important to our own culture. As you were saying, I suppose we all know generally what Dickensian London looks like, but mm. you did bring it out in other ways. It's not as though you don't address the abject poverty that these people were living in and the horrible lives that they were exiled from but escaped from in lots of ways as well. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. We had to understand them clearly in the context of what they had come from in order to understand the decisions William Thornhill made whilst when he was here. We had to understand that they were people who had nothing, literally nothing, uh, when they came and when they were in London, and what it means to have nothing. Because if we understand that, we start to understand why it's so important for them to take something that wasn't really theirs when they're here. And that was an important part of the adaptation. How do I um, create a sense of the times and place that these people have come from without dramatising it? How can I locate it and root it and embed it in the actual characters here and now? How do you feel you did that? It's really subtle. It's um, in references to... Well, it's it's in the way they talk, it's what they talk about, but it's in the choices of what scenes to use. So the very first scene in which we meet William Thornhill is an incredible moment in this man's life because he's just been given his freedom. And it's contained... uh, It's represented on a piece of paper that he's received from the governor, but he has to give it to his wife to read. Now, even in that small moment, we know that this man is illiterate uh, and therefore we already know an enormous amount about him. Again, in your introduction to the play script, you said that William Thornhill is a figure that modern audiences can recognise and empathise with. He's a loving husband, a father, a man who wants to rise above the conditions into which he was born and secure a better future for those who will come after him. The aspiration seems to me to be quintessentially Australian, you said. Can you expand on that and tell me how you see Thornhill's aspirations as being quintessentially Australian? Well, it seems to me one of our great national stories is one of migration of people who have come here from somewhere else in the hope of creating a better life. Right from the convicts and the early settlers, they were they were fleeing something because the thing that they were leaving could not sustain them. Convicts were forced here, but the free settlers came with that hope of a new life. And that's the pattern that has gone th- right through our history, where you know, through all the waves of migration. We are a country full of stories of people 
hoping to create a better life for ourselves or more importantly for our children. And once you get William Thornhill as that kind of man, that kind of man that's just trying to work out how to create a better life for his children, suddenly he feels very relatable to. He feels like somebody that we might know. If not, we can empathise with him. Why do you think Thornhill turns the way he does? Because there were signs at the beginning that he was trying. Yeah. Yeah, this is the story of a good man who does evil, not a bad man who does evil. So it's important that we see the ways William Thornhill tried to understand where he was and what it meant. Uh, But in the end, I think he was defeated by his very defined understanding of what it meant to own land. So he he could not see that he owned it if they were there too, if he had to share it. He needed to put up a fence and say, this is mine, and this is a man who comes from nothing, who the very idea of owning land was simply an impossibility in London. So he he can only model his understanding on land of what he knew from the gentry in, in, in England, uh, and that's a very clear of, this is mine and it's not yours. Well, it's what we're struggling with now as a country through Mabo and land rights, at last, we are addressing the question that maybe we could have addressed back then, which is how can a two understandings of land ownership coexist and enhance each other? But William, as a, um impoverished London convict, could not, ultimately couldn't come at it. Especially not when he's given carte blanche by the governor. Well, yeah, so there's it became legal to do what they did. They, it was sanctioned and that's a very significant moment in the play when they receive that authority. And it's a significant no- moment for Thornhill because previous to that, he's aware that Smasher Sullivan is doing the wrong thing. That is probably killing black people on his land. They're turning a blind eye or they're trying to confront it. They're trying to warn Smasher you know, what you do, we'll all pay the price for. There's very various references to it, but nobody deals with it directly. Blackwood is the only one that confronts Smasher. But when they get that authority from government, it gives them the permission and it, it tips Thornhill over, I think. You say in your introduction again that building the Durag presence in the play was fundamental to our approach and became one of the key differences between the play and the novel. Grenville chose to keep the Durag characters at a distance and in part Kate chose to do this for cultural reasons. She felt that there was a line that as a white writer she couldn't cross. We didn't have that choice. Tell me why you didn't feel like you had that choice. Well, to tell a story... On stage, you are dependent on the actors who are going to tell that story. Now, we simply couldn't have a number of silent Indigenous actors representing the Darug people. They needed a voice, they needed a point of view, they needed a stake in this story. And one of the important steps along that way was to give them actual names. So in the novel, they are named according to how the white settlers have named them, Whisker Harry. Polly. Yeah, so we've given them names that we can relate to. But actually these people have names that belong to their culture. So naming them was a very symbolic and significant moment in our process of coming to terms with this material. 
And another thing we did, which I thought, which was really at Neil Armfield's insistence, he said we're going to have even numbers of black characters and white characters. I thought that was a really important step, simply because it created a particular energy and presence in the room, but it also demanded of me that I create story for the Indigenous characters. And we also wanted to build it around the notion of two families who actually shared a great deal as well as being quite different. So what are we going to eat tonight? What are the children doing? Are they are they mucking around or are they being good? Who are those fellows on the other side of the, the point and when are they going to go away? So these two families are asking the same questions, but they have a very different relationship to land. And a man named Richard Green, an actor and Durag man, actually helped you with the Durag language and also helped you with some of the songs as well, I believe? Yeah, so Richard Green's a Durag elder and songman. Um, so, so for some time in the adaptation, I was stumped. I knew that we had to give voice to these characters, but I had been told there was no language. So we explored a whole series of theatrical devices including borrowing language from elsewhere, creating our own language, all sorts of different theatrical ways to deal with it. Um, But finally, Richard came into the rehearsal room and we presented the problem to him. And he simply said, it's a lie that there is no language. And he opened his mouth and he first sung us a Darug song and then started to translate little bits of language. In fact, he insisted on responding to what we were saying in Darug. So it was liberating because I thought, ah, we have language. Mm. And once we have language, we we can put words in actors' mouths. But the important thing that Richard and I came to an understanding on was that what we would not do is to create language around Darug's spirituality we would be careful not to represent the sacred. We would root the language in the domestic because, you know, there's a lot of assumptions involved in going there and we were careful the way we did that. I want to talk about Dirumbin next. She's a continual presence in the play, a conduit between the past and the present, but she doesn't appear in the novel. Can you tell me why you felt the need to create the character of Dirumbin for the stage adaptation? Yeah, so Dirumbin is the Darug word for the Hawkesbury. The river is an enormous presence in both the novel and the play. And when you go up there, you know, it's very powerful, the Hawkesbury River. You realise it's been there a long time. And so this idea emerged between us that this river has witnessed this history uh, and it continues to witness our history. It's been there forever. That gives it a very unique perspective, a continuity that has seen both a black and a white history on this body of water. And that made it very powerful and very resonant. And in the theatre we can do things like embody an abstract notion like a river. It felt an opportunity to give the river a voice, to enhance our storytelling, but it's also just about the dramatic technique of needing to keep the story moving forward. A narrator is a very handy kind of device to do that, but not just any narrator. You wanted to give the narrator some meaning greater than simply being the person who moved the story forward. Well, to go back to the idea of 
what Durenbin represents and the fact that she does have an understanding of the story as it's already played out and she's retelling it. There's something very powerful in that because the audience obviously does too, all of us watching this story. It, it's tragedy in its truest sense. We know exactly what's coming and we're helpless to do anything about it. Was that something that you thought she brought to the story as well? Was that sense of impending tragedy? I'm not convinced that, you know, our history is still contested space. We are still arguing about it. And, and hence what we refer to the, as the history wars is still quite alive in our contemporary culture. But it's such an interesting conversation where we're engaged in, I think. Um, Secret River played a role in that, you know, a really important role in that conversation. But I don't think everybody came to that show accepting the history or really having thought deeply about the history and having felt the consequences of the history. I think Kate's novel and I think it's The Secret River are two steps which enable an audience to not only think abstractly about that history, but to feel what that history means. One of the most effective ways that you did that was actually to have the direct language included and not to have surtitles there. Mm. So the audience, as they were watching, were just as confused as Thornhill about what was happening there. It did add an element of real tension. Was that intentional? Yeah, it was a very clear choice not to surtitle it. One, to create that same experience of the reader of the book and not having access to understanding everything. But also we did want to apologise for the language. The language spoke for itself and it was pretty clear. The action of the scene, thanks to Neil's direction and the work of the actors, was always, for me, crystal clear. Uh, I think there was some criticism that, you know, well, why didn't you give voice, equal voice to the black actors? And, uh, you know, my response to that is we did. Just because you, did, you don't have that language doesn't mean, you know, w we should um, therefore structure the show around that. So there's two things going on there, Toby. One is we wanted to create the sense for the audience of not understanding and therefore having to lean into the work to read the physicality and the exchanges that were going on between white and black on stage in order to understand how those people in the actual history may have begun to resolve some of those issues. How did they talk about land when they didn't share a spoken language? That was a kind of a real point of fascination. The other was to allow the Darug to be heard, to actually hurt, be heard. If we created surtitles, you're still filtering that language through an English paradigm. You're reading it rather than listening to it. And when you actually sit and you listen, you realise you understand a hell of a lot more than you think you do. The kids have no problem overcoming that barrier. It's the adults that struggle with it. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that's true um, with children, uh, children's relationship to language anywhere and at any time. If they learn it young they pick it up very easily. But the two Thornhill boys are um, Willie and Dick, and they're quite different in their response. Dick's very open and immediately down on the riverbank with the Indigenous kids wanting to play. A pretty natural kind of response um, from a kid. 
Willie's more cautious and more distrustful, uh, more like his father, I guess, more concerned about um, the Indigenous kids. But, you know, that was one of the joys of the show, those kids on stage and how easily they became friends. And it really stood for something that perhaps... Uh, w- we all might have aspired to, I guess. And with Dick and Narabi and Garraway sliding down the stage, yeah. it was pretty fantastic, the little it, waterfall they created there or, or part it? of the river. It was amazing. It was. It's just, you know, in the book, um, it's a scene of them swimming together. Uh, even in the play, I, I wrote it as a scene about swimming. But how do you do that on stage? And that's Neil's kind of magic, really. You, you have the kids playing with a bucket of water, and they throw throw the water on, on the stage and suddenly they start to slide. Now, that moment's actually discovered in rehearsal because suddenly they've got a wet floor. What do kids do? They throw themselves onto it. And it was so joyous and it made such sense because that's what kids do. They play. Um, and it was great to watch on stage because it was a bit dangerous and a bit risky as well the kids sliding down full speed towards the orchestra pit that was one of the most incredible things for me about the show was the set as well i mean stephen curtis did an incredible job there to have the i don't want to say the guts of it that's not quite right but to have the architectural elements of it apparent to you in the audience seeing people sit off stage and waiting their turn having these little um quite large actually branches of eucalypts coming in tied around the lighting balustrades and posts and obviously that incredible tree, mm. the eucalypt itself, that mm. really said absolutely everything. Oh, absolutely. It it elevated the naturalism to the symbolic, which is what we want theatre to do. It was a really brilliant creative team, everything from Stephen's design to Tess Schofield's costume concept of chalking up the faces of the white people and putting charcoal on the faces of the black people that through the course of the show kind of wore away and kind of intermingled with each other. So by the end of the show, everybody was kind of grey and brown. It spoke so much. So, so it was such a powerful statement. But, you know, Stephen's design, um, he lives on the Hawkesbury River. He, he has a... Um, a beautiful understanding and of that place and relationship to it. And it was very important to him that he designed this show because he had something to say about this river as a designer of this place and this history. And he has considered this history, living there, a great deal. Um, I was blown away by the design because it gave majesty to it that towering eucalypt or cliff face or however you want to read it gave a sense of scale to the story we were telling. Yet the decision to use just one campfire for both families kind of gave it a sort of unity. And then, yeah, stripping away the sides of the space so that quite often the actors are witnessing the storytelling, ready to step in, all of those decisions, having Ian Grandage there on set, using the actors as performers as well. You know, Ian becomes a storyteller as well in the process, becomes certain characters now and then, all of those elements. I mean, they're very much kind of Neil Armfield's aesthetic, you know, coming out of Cloud Street, again, very Australian, I think, uh, in its theatrical form. But yes, the set was inspiring. 
I can only imagine that everyone who worked on this play felt the momentous weight of history. I mean, the history being examined through the story that you were all telling, but also the history that you were actually creating by telling this story together. Give me a sense of the mood during the play's development and rehearsals. Again, I, I, I go back to Neil's decision to make sure that the ensemble was of equal numbers of Indigenous actors and white actors. Um, that in itself set a mood of equality. They were, oh, we're telling this story together. There was a very explicit awareness that this story mattered. I feel like the actors, I feel like everybody involved in it understood that and it enhanced the process so that there were stakes involved. Well, I'd like to talk about that and perhaps that will get woven into this question that I want to ask about the, the social commentary. Starting um, with your own personal response to the difficult questions that the story raises. You say in your introduction, I hope I would have refused the prosperity gained from the act of violence and dispossession that the novel describes. I suspect, though, that like many at the time, I would have justified it as a necessary consequence of establishing a new country and found a way to live with it by not speaking of it. I would have chosen silence, as so many generations of white Australians did. And for me, that was the most difficult aspect of the story, watching it and having the thought throughout the whole process, what would I have done? What would I have done? What would I have done? It's unsettling because it's unanswerable. Mm. What do we gain from reflecting upon unanswerable questions like those raised in The Secret River? Toby, for me, you know, a, a nation that is confident in itself is a nation that can uh, look at all aspects of its past and understand them. The fact that there was frontier violence, uh, the fact that there was dispossession of Aboriginal lands, um, the fact that there was murder, are truths that I believe need to be understood to understand who, who, who we are as a country. To deny that seems both childish and, and somehow thwarts our sense of ourselves. We could not talk about this history for so long for a number of reasons. We chose not to teach it in our schools so that when I was went through both primary school and high school, I had no notion of this history. And yet I lived in a town in Western Australia that was very close to a massacre site, the Pinjarra massacre site, and the the residue of that conflict was still being played out between black and white in that town, and yet we had no way to talk about it. We didn't know. Well, my children will know, and their children will know. And, and the other really important thing to me is that this, in acknowledging what was done, uh, we are paying respect, I think, to to the Aboriginal people that were caught up in this after being unacknowledged for so long. I want to explore the idea that we're left with at the end of the play, when Thornhill builds his fence, marking the land as his own and keeping others out. I'm going to read a quote from your speech at the 2014 National Playwriting Festival. The white settlement of this country was violent. It was resisted. It did involve the illegal dispossession of land from its rightful owners. No treaty was ever entered into. And although indigenous cultures and peoples have survived this invasion, its consequences have been felt throughout the generations that followed. That is an undeniable truth. 
And in the final scene of The Secret River, we feel that so intensely when Nulla Mullum resists Thornhill's half-hearted attempts to feed and clothe him, this broken man who has lost everyone he holds dear, left with scars that will never heal, and certainly not with some tucker and sugary tea or a winter coat. And then right after that, when he jerks away from Thornhill's grass saying, this is me, my place, we're left with the image of Thornhill building his fence. And in your introduction, you question which side of the fence Thornhill is actually on. Can you expand on that for me? Yeah, well, as, as the actor Nathaniel Dean was creating that image, painting the fence on the, on the backdrop of the set, they started to resemble like prison bars. And I guess an unacknowledged history like that imprisons us to a certain degree in a limited notion of who we are. And if we don't deal with this stuff, if we don't look into our history and face the shadow of our past, we are thwarted as a people. We are somehow imprisoned. You know, that's really the idea I was trying to convey. We might think we're keeping them out, but we're actually confining ourselves in some sort of space that is based on lies and untruths. What's the most important thing that you'd like people to take away from the story? Is, is that it or is it something else? The most powerful moment, I think, is the very final moment where Nyala Malam bangs his hand on the earth and says, this me, my place. It's a very powerful assertion of despite all that has been done, despite all that you have done, I remain connected to this earth and this earth continues to define me continues to determine who I am. So for me in that, there's a very powerful statement that despite this history, Aboriginal culture has survived and and prospers or flourishes despite the challenges of inequity that, that we face in our contemporary society. So there's that. The other thing that, that I would hope people would take away is that possibility that it could have been different that our relationship to Indigenous culture, that we could have learnt from it, we could have found a way to coexist. It's expressed in the play and in the book in terms of know your place and give a little and take a little. It's as simple as that. And you see where, where black and white live well together in this country. That's the kind of ethos that we kind of live by. You give a bit, you take a bit, you know who you are and you know your place and you respect others. Andrew, thank you so much for talking to me about The Secret River. Thanks, Toby. Thanks for listening to this episode of Not In Print. We hope you enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. You can find out more about who we are and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. Just search for Currency Press on Facebook or Twitter and drop us a line. This episode was produced by Currency Press with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at the University of Sydney.